Welcome to Temple Talks, the podcast of Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we chat with partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire and challenge you. And give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. We want to thank the Minda family for this episode is sponsored by the Rabbi Albert and Francis Minda Leadership Fund of the Minneapolis Jewish Federation. I am in conversation with Reverend Elijah McDavid III, and it is wonderful to have gotten to know you over these months. And really, Elijah, I'd just love for you to tell us kind of your journey to Minneapolis, where you grew up and, and where you went to seminary and the churches you served before you came to fellowship. Of course. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Rabbi Zimmerman, and with the Temple Israel community. Bring you greetings from the Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church in North Minneapolis. And I've been blessed to serve there beginning in November of 2020. Yeah, never really saw my journey ending up in Minneapolis, but grateful for uh, God's direction and leading me here and being invited to be a part of this great community. I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, so right outside of Washington, D.C. Parents were, one was a Navy sailor, the other worked as a computer programmer for the IRS. And so never really saw myself in ministry until during my time at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, just was in the right space. Um, a wonderful place that was really an incubator for so many who have gone into ministry. And so grateful to be groomed in that space from Morehouse. Uh, life led me to Union Theological Seminary in New York City. While there, I served the First Corinthian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York, and had the amazing experience of working in that environment. And then was invited home after finishing seminary to come back to the Alpha Tree Baptist Church, one of the oldest black congregations in America, started in 1803. I was an assistant pastor there for three years, helping to do a little bit of everything from small groups to community engagement um, to pastoral care. And so was blessed to serve in that very large congregation. And during the end of 2019, I, I received a phone call from someone who said, you don't know me, but I helped introduce your parents and I've been following your ministry online and you are unique and you would be a great fit for a church that one of my best friends is retiring from. I said, where's the church? They said, Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> I said, I think I've only connected in the airport a few times. Um, so I'm going to have to pray all this and make a few visits before I could say yes to applying. But that began a series of wonderful conversations with me and some folk at fellowship. And so several months later, God had just ordained it um, for me to be here. And so it's been a joy to come. It's been interesting transitioning during the midst of a pandemic that none of us had expected or planned for. But in this city, I have found a great deal of home and joy um, and love from those who've embraced me. So I'm grateful be here. It's wonderful, wonderful journey. Wasn't your grandfather preacher, minister? Yeah. My grandfather uh, was a pastor. He's the one other clergy in our family. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side pastored in South Carolina. And so beginning 1940s all the way up and through when I was born in the 90s. And so he's been a hero to me. He's passed on now. But I take so many of the lessons that I got from him and from being able to spend summers in South Carolina and in the rural American South, which is different from my D.C. upbringing. And so I like to say that I bring a good combination of those two to my ministry every day and appreciate the values that he instilled with me uh, growing up and, and serving in ministry in that very difficult season. 
I can imagine your mother feels quite proud to now have her father and now her son. That seems to be a legacy that's really important. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And tell me what it's like to be, you know, an assistant associate pastor to now being the senior pastor. How has that been for you? And what is that? honed what skills and, and perhaps, you know, some of, of the challenges of transitioning from associate to senior. Yeah. Uh, you pick up the phone a lot more and call folks because <laughs> senior leadership, I think could be this challenging in the sense that it's more lonely. You know, you have a, a smaller team and you're working to kind of make some of the big decisions all on your own. Whereas in the larger church settings where I came from, where you have a team of clergy and we can all kind of bounce things off of one another, it relies on, you know, falls on us now as senior clergy to kind of really make those big decisions and carry the weight of what it is. But I, I really think that I've been blessed to be able to kind of serve in those larger environments and to know what it means to try to meet a large variety of needs. And then now, even at a smaller scale, to still see the diversity. God always puts us in such diverse places, no matter how small of a group we may be serving, right? Everybody is full of so many different opinions, backgrounds, right? Where we're coming from and all of that texture and we're weaving it together, trying to make sense of it all. And that that's just the beauty of the work that we do in religious institutions. And so that gives me a little bit of joy each and every day, but I'm grateful to kind of be in this role, to be able to learn from those who've come before me, learn, learn, learn from those who I'm serving now and figure out what does it mean to paint a path of ministry forward in what we used to say a post-pandemic world. Now we're saying it's maybe endemic. And so we don't know what this is going to look like, but the reality is we know that coming out of this season, um, church, synagogue, whatever, is all going to look very different. And so I'm grateful to be leading a congregation who is now because of this season, we're forced to reimagine what our work looks like. And so that's more exciting as even as it is also daunting at the same time. So talk to me a little bit about that future vision. You know, what is fellowship? Tell me the history and then the vision. So the history of fellowship, most of the folk who originally started our church were part of a, another church in North Minneapolis. And so, oh, in North um, Minneapolis. yeah, okay. so they, they were all there together, um, and, and there was some controversy, some things that happened. And it's funny, it all happened the same year I was born. So there you me, go. me and Fellowship share the same birthday. And so that, that's how I see God in all of this. Um, yeah, <laughs> those folk branched out, um, had a different idea for what church could be. And they started by renting a space in the West River Point Supper Club. So I pastor a Baptist church that started in a bar, which I always think is the most hilarious <laughs> thing in the world. But but really what's beautiful about our context was a church that early on affirmed women in ministry before many of the Baptist churches in this city were doing that. And so that's a proud legacy that we carry. And, and a congregation that is what I call extra Baptist in the sense that we believe in autonomy and the right of Every person in our congregation have a vote and a voice. That's that's weaved throughout the texture of fellowship. And then the last hallmark is is the name itself, right? Which is this sense of yeah. family and hospitality, which we've tried to overemphasize over the years. And so for me, the vision going forward continues to emphasize that, especially that hospitality piece. I think that's so important as we think about what does 
church look like in this new world and this virtual setting? What does virtual hospitality look like? What does it mean for us to still provide this sense of connection and family at a time where so many are feeling isolated? I got a lot of tech savvy friends who are always talking about enjoying the things that are going to go away as technology <laughs> moves forward, right? So we're all taking more road trips now because we know in a few years, all of our cars will be self-driving and we want those experiences. We're going to be able to cherish them now before they're gone. And so I think about that with church. What does it mean to really take advantage of those moments that we have now that won't be available to us years later as technology move forward? And then also how do we recreate these things that right now we can't imagine happening in a technological setting, but we'll need to, right? Because they're foundational to who we are. So that's the picture of what we're still creating. Hospitality, how do we serve our children? How do we make sure um, that they still feel protected and loved and are seen as children of God in this world that still doesn't quite value their full humanity? That's the big picture of the vision. All the little details we're still drilling out and, and painting as we go. You came here and right before the pandemic, right? And then also around the murder of George Floyd and all that was happening in our city and in our country. What it, was it like for you to be newly here at the epicenter of really speaking about police brutality, not in the black community, but in the white community? I mean, it's what, what has that been for you? And and what insight can you give people at Temple about our community and what we should be thinking about? Yeah, it, it was it was shocking, Rabbi. I mean, I, I think I submitted my application to fellowship right before the world shut down, March 2020. And then we were in the final round to me and my three other candidates right when the murder of George Floyd took place. And so that was, yeah, it was eye-opening and you know, it's just, it's, and it's really weird to kind of shift for me growing up, I guess, in the DC area, hate to say it, but in the nineties, right. We kind of saw racism, at least the way I did as this kind of Southern problem, right. You know, it existed in these red States, if you will, a certain part of the country type of deal. And then the issues with police brutality in Minnesota that have just, you know, escalated year after year. Now the world just kept kind of turning each, every, you know, every two years, our heads were turned. What's going on in Minnesota? What's wrong with that place, right? You know, why why did things happen in such a particular way there? And so it was it was interesting to come out here and miss the pandemic aftermath of George Floyd and to merely first do the task of pastoral care. What does it mean to look after a traumatized people? Watching that, experiencing that is was deeply traumatic. And so it's immediately caring for first those wounds and then at the same time recognizing, okay, here are these structural issues at play here, right? Look at these devastating inequalities in terms of economics, housing, health care that really separate, right? North Minneapolis, where my congregation sits from, say, Edina or anywhere else in the southwestern part of the city, right? What What is going on at work here and what, what can we really tackle? Church is tough, right? Religious institutions are tough because on the one hand, I think most of what we're doing is to kind of immediately kind of stop the bleeding. Mm -hmm. Right. Most of us, we have the food programs, right? Mm -hmm. We may have after school tutoring. We have these things that are meant to kind of immediately soothe the pain of groups who have been impacted by America's neglect or direct. And then though we know that there also are these long-term solutions and mm -hmm. what does it look for us to fight for and advocate for those? We've seen religious institutions at the forefront of kind of these major social movements at certain points in history, but that kind of ebbs and flows, it goes in and out. And, and you wonder, right, the balance, like how much can you change and can you fix, mm -hmm. right? And how much of it is just, no, 
Our job is to stop the bleeding while we can. And that's a tough balance to go back and forth. I, I tell folks, I, I, I went into ministry around 2011, 2012. And so for me, one of the biggest moments in the black church right before then was the spring of 2008. You have Senator Barack Obama running for president. And he has this big moment where he has to disown his relationship with his black pastor and his black church yeah. on the campaign trail because Reverend Jeremiah Wright has now become the epitome of the controversy. And those of us who grew up in black church space, we're like, we hear Reverend Wright's type of sermons all the time, right? Like that's, that's bread and butter to what we do. And, and it was so interesting. Then Senator Obama said the problem with the black church is that they view racism as endemic, right? As this thing that can't be changed, right? And, and I think about that every day when I'm walking into ministry prior to the chapter after that season, right? A lot of it, right, as much as we want to be hopeful and believe in change and think that we can work at the highest levels of our country to improve the situation, there is still very much a part of us woven into the fabric of our ministries that says, this thing ain't going to change. And in the meanwhile, here's what we're going to do to take care of our children and our elderly, to make sure our own communities are safe, to do what we can, to pull together our own resources, to provide for one another in moments of need. Because while we may not change things at the legislative or the judicial level, we know we can take care of our own here and now, and we have a mandate and a mission to do that. Well, so interesting. I mean, I, I, I think about the fact that in the immediate aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, whatever was happening, the white community seemed to be waking up to police brutality in a different way, which again, was so not true in the black community that had dealt with it and, and, and experienced it over every day. So there was like hope. And then we knew that window was gonna shut and we knew that there'd be that controversy. And so I wonder if Senator Obama had to disconnect what a painful moment that was perhaps for him personally, I am sure, but that it's the definition of the white community on what church should be or what ministry should be. You know, it's just an interesting insight there. It is. It's, it's yeah, it, it's hard to really find. And I think I, myself, I vacillate between the two, right? You know, how much, how much change can we create? How much convincing and convicting can we do in terms of yeah. this moral problem that is out there in racism, That's right? right? And then how much care should we be focused on, right? right? It's the balance between right. social justice and pastoral care is what yeah. we would use in seminary, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so yeah. how do you direct your time, your energy, and yeah. your resources? Yeah. I don't have the answer to that question, but I yeah. know life sends yeah. us like a ping pong ball back and forth. What about being on the North side has amazed you and, and, been a real learning, you know, kind of the highlights and, and some of the lowlights. Yeah. I think the highlights is it's the amazing tight knit community, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, it's almost like being in a small town, but yeah. you still recognize that the twin cities are a big place, but you know, this community of people of color, like everybody knows everybody. And there's, there's a beauty in that, right? There's a sense of family and, and care and the pride in the history and, and the culture that comes out, right? This, th there's a sense in which I'm, I'm called thinking of Minneapolis as music city, right? I think that's mm -hmm. one of the ways we encounter it. So much talent and richness that that's been birthed out of this place. At the same time, the difficulties and challenges are, are right there in these arch inequalities, right? They're just so, 
so heavy and so deep and so real. And they, they show up in so many things, like the obvious things about healthcare. You know, when I first got here, we were doing so much of a push to try to make sure vaccines were readily accessible on the North side. That, that, that took us, you know, most of our focus for the first three months sort of my pastorate. And we knew it was necessarily proud of the work that we did, but it just illuminated, right? What has been going on. But then even the small things, right? You know, I remember when I first moved here, somebody said, well, yeah, what you'll notice is you drive to church that road get clear when it snowstorms in Minneapolis on certain sides of town long before they would get over to the oh. north side. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, you know, growing up in a place where it doesn't snow much, never even thought about seeing inequality show up in something yeah. simple as that, right? Yeah. But but there it is once again. And so, you know, I, I, I don't have all the solutions. I, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, fellowship doesn't have to do this work by itself, that there are other ministries in in North Minneapolis that do the work, that there are a variety of nonprofits, right? And in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, right, especially something in Minneapolis has to be done to kind of balance this equation, to bring all of our people, all of our community into this picture of how we make life work together. When you think about, you know, snow plowing, streets. It's all about getting to work and getting kids to school and all the daily, what a frustrating experience if you get caught in the snow, not because of anything other than the snowplow didn't come through, you know, that it's, and that, that adds and adds and adds when there's everyday frustrations. It's, it's an ongoing piece. It's really interesting. And these frustrations most recently have compounded into violence, right? Because Mm -hmm. That's the result of, you know, when people are fully, you know, neglected and left mm-hmm. without resources, right? And so, and and now our children are growing up and being most affected, right? And this is happening all over the country, but, you know, mm-hmm. we're seeing it, especially um, in my neighborhood, of folk who don't feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, there's not much hope for a lot else going on in life, mm-hmm. right? And so... You know, how we kind of, again, back to the style of bleeding metaphor on this issue, that's going to be one of our biggest questions, right? What do we do between gun buybacks and education programs and other things? But we, we have to tackle this issue because unless folk feel safe to live, to learn, to worship, there's not a whole lot else we can do in ministry. So true. So true. So I want to turn to your installation. It was such a powerful day. And I appreciate you having me come up on the pulpit and and read a psalm. And that was very powerful to have Temple represented and and participating in it. Every single one of your friends in ministry were incredible preachers. And I have to say, I, I feel, and you are an incredible preacher. You preached at Thanksgiving at Temple. And I am extremely jealous. <laughs> I mean, I, I just want to meet your teachers. So talk to me about the art of preaching, where you learned it, who are your role models, and how you continue to work on it. Yeah, I mean, I think first it starts and um, grateful that I had old school parents who took me to church every Sunday. Oh. I grew up in one of those houses where it just wasn't optional, right? We would have missed church like one Sunday a year. And so I was always, you know, hearing it and, and the amazing artistry that is the Black preaching experience, mm-hmm. right? From birth 
growing up. And then there were some special Sundays. I think my dad started to do something around the time I was in middle school. He would take me to Rankin Chapel, which is on the campus of Howard University. Every week, uh, Rankin Chapel would feature um, a nationally known preacher from somewhere in the country. And so I didn't appreciate it at the time, right, but grew into that appreciation of, of wow, like hearing some folk um, who just were masters of the craft, right? Men and women who who were just who were lauded everywhere for the work that they had done. And so that kind of probably planted the seeds for my interest that would grow and develop at Morehouse and uh, really give credit to that space more than any other for really developing uh, my abilities as a preacher and for understanding what it means to search our texts and scriptures in the fullest way possible to find what is there that can speak to the present moment um, and the pain that individuals are carrying. My early teachers of preaching, right, taught us that every moment of the pulpit is life or death, right? That you never know how weak somebody may be and fragile they may be on that given Sunday or whatever moment you may be preaching and that that time is valuable. And so never to waste a single word, sentence, or paragraph, because there is an opportunity for, through the power of God, for you to help save someone's life. And so always think about that. It's just a huge privilege and enormous burden at the same time, but that's the beauty of the work we're doing. And so I was there at Morehouse under the tutelage of Dean Lawrence Edward Carter. He's been the dean of the Martin Luther King Chapel there for 40 years teaching. And so was grateful to be there. And that's where I found my circle. So many of the folks that you saw on that installation day shared in that lineage of coming out of Morehouse and that great tradition of preachers. Others I met along the way in seminary while I was at Union, got to study under Dr. Lisa Thompson, who's now at Vanderbilt. Um, I was working under Pastor Michael Walren in New York and Harlem. Um, other folk, Dr. Sean McMillan, Dr. Howard John Wesley, so many names, right, that mean so much to me uh, because they took hours, right, of, of opening you up to a text and saying, okay, find, find the message here, find the meaning, right? What is this speaking to our current predicament? That's, and then you would respond, you would have a sermon idea. They say, that's not good enough. Drill a little deeper, right? You say something else, right? That, go, go a little deeper. You reach for it. Find what is the essence of what, of what God wants to say. And I think now so much of what I do, and this is also goes back to my time at Union, but I'm always thinking about psychology of religion, right? Mm -hmm. And, and what are the tonalities psychologically in the text that may relate to our current dilemma. We are such a busy people, right? And I think I had one person, one mentor who told me, you know, unfortunately, part of the pastorate in the capitalist society that we live in is that you get paid to stop, sit, breathe, and think so, so that you can come up with these sermons and these messages from God that other folk are too busy to hear, mm -hmm. right? That everyone else is running and constantly on this grind, trying to keep up with the demands of the life that we live. And the goal of the pastor, priest, clergy is to actually take time to seriously pause, breathe, listen, pray, and hear from the Spirit as to what needs to be said. It'd be great if we could all do that, but our world doesn't allow for that. So we have to stand in that gap. Mm -hmm. So you always start with the text, whatever that text may be. And in the Baptist tradition, is there a specific text for every week? You no. Know, I didn't think so. Yeah, we, we're not tied to lectionary. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't have known the lectionary was a thing until, you know, my later years at Morehouse, right? Even as someone who was steeped in church and because as Baptist preachers, we were kind of free to pick and choose whatever we may feel. My process now, kind of sitting with my colleagues, we kind of do these writing retreats where we'll kind of mm -hmm. go and we'll talk about the various pastoral care and community concerns in our various environments 
put those up on the wall and then we'll kind of search through text together to see, okay, what's relevant. And out of that births these kind of sermon series that we do or, you know, four or five, six weeks, we're kind of sitting within a series of ideas. Wow. Um, and a lot of those, yeah, primarily led by the pastoral care concerns. And then the text illuminates how we might find a solution to that particular issue. Wow, that's powerful. So it's really talking about fellowship and the definition of fellowship. It's at every level where, you know, rabbis are left to their own accord. Like, you know, if you if you consult with somebody, it's seen as weak. When this is like strength and fellowship works from all different levels. I love that. Yeah. And I'll be honest, it's a new thing. I mean, preaching has always been taught as this kind of solo art, right? You know, and we do in isolation. We struggle alone, right? To find this sermon. We don't really have it edited by anyone. I think I'm beginning to see, at least in my church context, that world kind of dying and people beginning to see the need of preaching and writing to really be a team effort in what we do, because it has to be. I I tell folk all the time, your favorite musical artist releases 12 songs or so about every two years. Yeah. Right. So why would you expect your pastor, your rabbi to have 52 great tracks come out every year? Right. It's unreasonable True. expectation. Right. We, we got to get in the teamwork thing because I believe that that will just really help to illuminate preaching in new ways that will make it more re- resonant. I love that. I love that. I think we should set that up with the downtown clergy because I really do feel like we we it is is this solo art, which is, I think, coming from a certain mentality out there that is is not a value anymore. Um, and I and I love the idea that it's a dying art. I, I'm ready to put it <laughs> to bury it in order to find a new process. I love that. Yeah, I know my daughter is is a rabbi, and she's in a business with a minister friend of hers to do what in Judaism is ketubot, so it's marriage contracts. And her friend who's in seminary is having contracts in a Christian setting as just sort of what commitments are you making to each other to put in this really beautiful image on the wall and being able to make it a craft taken from Judaism, but reestablishing it within a Christian context. And it's really beautiful so they they're working together in that yeah that does sound beautiful i mean yeah i think we're it's always that task of making sure that congregations don't see the preach matches as something that falls from the sky right you know that that this is something that is intentionally created with heart and soul and mind right and how do we make sure that the best of what we get right is getting to the people right because at the end of the day we know now right attention spans are shrinking and shrinking Right. Online church or online synagogue and worship is teaching us that. Right. Again and again, we now can see on YouTube when folk click off of our sermons. Right. <laughs> I, I grew up in a tradition where the Black Baptist preacher had an hour to preach. You had a captive audience. Right. Yep. Folk we're happy with that. Right. I, and now I'm, I'm down to making sure that I stay under 30 minutes in my context, which is which is short given. But I, I recognize if I go on YouTube and see my sermon that it's beautiful that we're getting nine and a half minutes yeah right uh, of, of undivided attention from folk yeah. right so how do we how do we carefully hone and honor the attention that we're getting from our listeners but also making sure that we realize we're living in a different world for me I've never been a member of a synagogue as an adult 
I've only been as a child and a teen, but I never sat in the pews as an adult member of a synagogue. I've always been of the rabbi. So I, in some ways, have to acknowledge what I don't know about that experience, too. So it's kind of interesting. We, we are the same way, right? Yeah, I've, yeah. I've been doing this work my whole adult life, so I don't know always what it's like to sit on the other side. And I, I love what one congregation I was visiting them on the West Coast, I saw they had a process where they were, their team of kind of writing pastors would get together and they would do these kind of pastoral care interviews, if you will, as they prepared their sermon series. Uh-huh. Right? So they would pluck two or three random members from the congregation um, and interview them. Hey, what's going on in your life? What are you struggling with this week? What's been tough in your marriage? Uh, where are your kids getting on your nerves? Right, And all of this stuff would kind of go into the brainstorm dump. And that would help to illuminate their sermons and really connect them with the pulse of what was happening in their congregation. That's the work that we all kind of need to be more intentional about manufacturing. In my opinion. And I know that Dwayne Davis is, takes like once a month or once every couple of months, a sermon idea from the congregation and picks one. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> well, good. Well, this is so fabulous. It's, it's my honor always to share and uh, grateful that fellowship can be in community with Temple Israel and grateful that we we have a good sense of neighborhood and, and in this city. This is this is something that at least to me is unique, served in a lot of different contexts, but I'm grateful for a group like the downtown clergy and knowing that we get to bring together this great ho- cohort of minds. That's all kind of with a similar heart committed to helping our city and our congregations be as strong and healthy as they can be. So thank you for the time, Rabbi. Well, I look forward to many more years you are such a wonderful addition to our Hebra, to our group. It's the Hebrew word for friends, to our fellowship. So I have so admired you in the short time I've known you, and I look forward to many more years ahead. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Temple Talks. Any questions or comments can be directed to tmoss at templeisrael.com and I will make sure that they arrive at their proper destination. Once again, we are grateful that this episode has been sponsored by the Rabbi Albert and Francis Minda Leadership Fund of the Minneapolis Jewish Federation. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next one.